Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to look today at the reading of the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke in the 6th chapter, the 17th to the 26th verses. This gospel is is kind of interesting for us because it is the Beatitudes. But we're very used to hearing the Beatitudes from the Gospel of St. Matthew, oftentimes um, argued whether there are seven or whether there are eight, because one is a redundancy. But Luke is, uh, is, is um, much more frugal with the, uh, with the Beatitudes. Luke himself only has four. But they're... they're while they probably are relying on a common source of some kind that is not the Gospel of Mark, um, because they kind of outline the same parameters of discipleship. But at the same time, Matthew's is a more um, firmly constructed, a more literary kind of compiling. And Luke's, on the other hand, is more like a proclamation, more like someone would speak it. They also vary on to where it took place. For Matthew, it takes place on a mountain, which is why we call it often the Sermon on the Mount. And um, because in Matthew, there is a real intent to see Jesus as the new lawgiver, as the new Moses, and speaking from the mountain, therefore giving the new kind of structure to the new covenant that Moses gave by the law in the old covenant. Luke, on the other hand, says that there is a level piece of ground and so, which neither one of them are particularly concerned about the geography of it all. It's just, first of all, that in Matthew's Gospel, the Beatitudes are a, uh, are a, a, uh, a proclamation, where in Luke's Gospel, it is, uh, it is more like a sermon, like Jesus teaching and preaching to the people. In, uh, in the midst of the people. So there is kind of a leveling process going on as he mingles with them, as he is part of them. Luke wants us to know that it's a very large gathering that has come around. And although um, it is in Galilee, there are people from parts of Judea and from Jerusalem and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. It means the large crowd is, uh, is a... Uh, reaction to Jesus's reputation, to the things that Jesus has been able to do as he has moved and begun his journey. Remember that in Luke's gospel, Jesus begins his, his mission in, uh, in Galilee. And then the gospel follows him in kind of a pilgrimage way from Galilee to Jerusalem to the cross. So Luke is not really concerned with where things actually took place. He wants them, and remember, even in the beginning of Luke's gospel, he says, I want to present what you've heard in an orderly way. Well, part of the order that he imposes on the story of Jesus is the progression of the Lord from Galilee to Jerusalem. So what's happening here, but he wants us to know that the reputation of Jesus has spread has spread throughout the whole of Palestine because people from Jerusalem and people from Judea and also people who are not necessarily Jews from Tyre and Sidon have come to hear him because they've heard that along with his teaching, 
He also finds it possible to heal the diseases and cure the sick. So they're coming here, gathering around him for a couple of reasons. First, they have heard his teaching, and secondly, they have seen the miracles that he could work. And so they're fascinated. Remember, even in the story of the execution of John the Baptist, it says that Herod was fascinated by the preaching of John and heard him whenever he could. Um, we also know that in, in the gospel of uh, the casting out into the deep and catching the big catch of fish, that uh, the reason that Peter was willing to do that was there was something kind of magnetic, we might say, or something kind of fascinating about the person of Jesus, about the person who was talking to him. And it says he was proclaiming the word of God, and he was, in other words, the word, the logos, um, was there present to Peter. He was enthralled with that so that he was willing to do something completely unreasonable, simply because he had been asked to do so by this man who was coming and teaching. So we can presume that there is something kind of magnetic about Jesus, something kind of charismatic about his personality, that people flock to him. And, uh, and then he punctuates his lessons and his teachings, he punctuates them with the miracles of the healing of the sick. So that when they gather around him then, then it says he fixes his eyes on his disciples. So now that they're there, now that they have gathered there, now that he has their attention and they're riveted on him, what is he going to say to us? What is he going to do to us? And then Jesus begins what Luke's version of the Beatitudes. And the first, how happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this has a very particular meaning to it. First of all, in the early days of the preaching of Jesus, it was not, as we know, the high priests or the royal court or anybody who particularly fled to him or who became his, his um, disciples. It was more or less the ordinary people. Even the disciples, we find, were, were fishermen. That doesn't mean that they were impoverished, but what it means is they're certainly not members of the ruling class either. And uh, and also this, the crowds, of course, we know. The sick come to him, the lepers come to him, and so forth. But we've seen this before, but I think in order for us to really reflect upon the Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel effectively, it's really important to know what he means by the poor. And uh, it doesn't mean that there is some kind of romanticism to uh, to being... Um, under the heel of a grinding, dehumanizing poverty. That's nothing that the Old or the New Testament ever idolizes at all. That the poor, um, called the Anawim, the poor of Yahweh, they are the ones who, in times of crisis and struggle, who, in times where they have the possibility of exploiting situations to enrich themselves and so forth, they they simply are not part of the of the crowd that does that, and so in their simplicity of life or in their poverty of life, they are attentive to the law of the Lord. They are attentive to the to the dwelling of the Lord in the temple. In other words, they are faithful. So that when Luke, who associates faithfulness to the gospel much more with actual poverty than, than does Matthew. Both of them, however, are saying the same thing. Blessed are those who trust completely in the Lord.
We've seen the story before of where the Anawim, first of all, appear in the pages of the Old Testament. And it's in the return from the exile in Babylon that Babylon, the greatest city of the world at the time, and as we know, at least in studying in grade school years ago, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the world and so forth. That was a magnificent place. Um, the exiles from Jerusalem, some of them assimilated and some of them uh, did very well, and they became then very much a part of Babylonian society. Some who, however, who could not do that, either from the lack of the skill level or from a lack of, or from a, a, a fidelity to the law of the covenant, feeling it was wrong for them to kind of, in some way, forth, way, shape, or form, assimilate themselves to to Gentile, um, to Gentile uh, mores and to Gentile ways of life and to Gentiles' way of earning livings and so forth, and so they kind of kept themselves a bit separate, as it were, from. Uh, from the Babylonian people, so that when the great emperors and kings Cyrus and Darius um, decided that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem, could go back to Israel, could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple, most of the Jews did not go back. It was a remnant that returned. It was the ones who had not assimilated, and therefore the ones who had not found a material sense of well-being and comfort in the city of Babylon. They were the ones then who accepted the invitation of the kings and began their long trek back to Jerusalem in the long and arduous journey of rebuilding the temple. The uh, interesting thing is, is that history itself kind of gives us a moral lesson in all of this. Those who had remained faithful to the Lord, the Anawim, they were the ones who went back to Jerusalem, their families grew, they rebuilt the temple, and so forth. Um, but we know, too, that the city of Babylon now, uh, some is, you know, underneath the blowing sands of the Iraqi deserts. And very little is left to testify to history about the grandeur of the whole endeavor. Whatever happened to the people within the city? Well, we know that through great wars and invasions, Babylon was ravaged. And, uh, and so those who chose to assimilate and to remain kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. While those remaining faithful to the Lord were the ones who tracked back to Jerusalem, and it was their descendants and their people then who continued the drama of the story of the covenant. So that when, in fact, Luke then says, blessed are you who are poor, in the real biblical sense of the word, he assumes that the majority of the people be around the Lord at the time are, are materially in want. He doesn't say, you know, that these, you know, that this is the, these are the ones who are starving to death or anything like that. But they are the ones who live the simple life and in the simplicity of their life remain faithful to the Lord and open to the covenant, open therefore to what Jesus is proclaiming. And he says, how happy you are, you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Um, in two things, then, this is an important line because it means those who live faithful lives are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And in a way, that's a two-pronged kingdom. It's a realized kingdom of the presence of God among them, even at this time. And it is also a futuristic sense that when, in fact, the kingdom of God is truly established, the kingdom on the hill of Isaiah and so forth, that these people are members then of the triumph of God on the day of the Lord. So while they dwell with the Lord even today in what we call realized eschatology, they also live with the promise of a future time in which they will be drawn more deeply into the mystery of the kingdom of God. And then he continues once again, and he says, how happy are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. That is a takeoff on the first one. Certainly the poor, certainly the ones who live very simply, Um, oftentimes there is a lack of food or at least a lack of the kind of foods that people would enjoy eating. And so basically hunger is part of the whole ethos of poverty. And he doesn't mean once again starving to death lying alongside the road, but it means those deprived of the huge abundance of food which many people have access to. But he says, you shall be satisfied. Once again, when the kingdom of God comes, uh, or better said, when the day of the Lord arrives, then these are the people who shall be satisfied, for they shall have their fill in the kingdom of God. They will be filled with the abundance of the Lord. And we've already seen also the theme of abundance in the Lord, the theme in the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, the theme and put out in the deep and catch huge um, numbers of fish and so forth, that one of the things that is associated with the presence of God is an abundance of God's goodness. It doesn't mean there's an abundance of wealth. It doesn't mean there's abundance of... of uh, anything actually material, but it does mean that there is an abundance of the goodness of God represented in the Gospels by both by both a huge catch of fish and by the multiplication of the bread loaves, and in other ways too, even the abundance of God's mercy, the abundance of God's love, and so forth. So that abundance is something that we associate um, with God and with the presence of God. And what they are saying then, what Luke is saying, is those of you who lack will have your fill, and when you will be satisfied in the day of the Lord, and in your relationship with God even now, will find an abundance of his presence and his goodness in your lives. Then he says, happy are you who weep now, for you shall laugh again. Enduring the sadness and the sufferings of life without losing faith in God. This becomes a very important part of Luke's Beatitudes. For the next one is, Happy are you when people hate you, drive you out, abuse you, denounce your name as criminal on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice when that day comes and dance for joy, for then your reward will be great in heaven. This was the way their ancestors also treated the prophets. One of the early senses of the church is that part of the holiness of life was enduring the persecutions and the hardships that life brought our way. Um, this is to be, of course, written in spades as it, as it comes um, into, the, into the era and, and very shortly into the era of the Roman persecutions, beginning with Nero's burning the Christian sections of Rome in order to make room for his circus. Um, 
so that somehow those who keep the faith during the hard times, during the times of great persecution, during the times of great hardship in what it means to be, to be a believer in Jesus Christ, blessed are those people, the, the Lord says, for you will be joyful, for your reward will be great in heaven. Once again, this eschatological promise that if you endure the hardships and the difficulties of believing in Jesus in the midst of the world in which we live, the Lord will receive you abundantly and willingly into the kingdom, into his presence, and into his person. Then Luke turns then from praising fidelity and strength and endurance and, and a steadiness in relationship to God as being prerequisites almost for the coming into the fullness of the day of the Lord, Luke then turns to what they call in some of the commentaries the woes. For he says that many of the prophets, he's saying in this, many of the prophets were persecuted by their own people. And that, uh, and that it, to endure that is to show signs of fidelity and uh, finds of, signs of, of loyalty to the Lord. But he says, you know, if think back on the prophets, how the prophets were all persecuted by, by the people of Israel themselves, abused and ignored and uh, ridiculed and, and all of those kinds of things. Well, Luke is now going to associate that with the power brokers of the society. But alas for you who are rich, you are having your consolation now. He is now contradistincting between <clears throat> the poor who are faithful and totally reliant on the Lord and the rich who rely on themselves and turn to the Lord at their own convenience. He's not saying obviously that anyone who is rich cannot be faithful to the Lord and cannot be holy, cannot be a good person. He's not saying that. But basically, he, Luke's gospel makes it very clear that he is concerned the impact that wealth has on people who are believers. For it can become kind of the foundation and the meaning of their life. It can in many ways so draw them and attract them um, into the material world that they lose sight of the presence of God and they lose sight of the Lord inviting them to a deeper life with him, a deeper loyalty, a deeper fidelity, a deeper holiness. He does not say it cannot be done. He does say throughout his gospel it can be a problem and an obstacle. But for those of you who's, who says who are rich and use it as the meaning of your life and interpret your worth, personal worth and your personal value and uh, your relationship to God and everything by your material possessions, um, you know, you have your consolation now. Woe to you. One wonders, you know, about when we read this in Luke's gospel, what people think who are involved in this gospel of prosperity business, or or even in the in the post-Calvin Calvinists and the somehow the acquisition of wealth becoming a, a sign of God's election and God's favor, and we have a tendency to do that too. Oh, God has blessed them so abundantly. Well, God has placed a heavy burden on them. And and how are they going to deal with that heavy burden? What are they going to do with that heavy burden? Are they going to use that heavy burden for 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 good? 
or are they simply to consume it for themselves and their own comfort? He then goes on once again, Luke does, and says, Alas for you who have your fill, you shall go hungry. Alas for you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. All of these is not saying we should not laugh, and all of this saying is that, you know, we can't be good people if we have some degree of material comfort. But what it does, it is contrasting the placing of values. Among the poor, the values are placed on fidelity to the covenant, fidelity to the Lord. In Luke's gospel, having great wealth of any kind is runs the danger of you becoming then attached to that, interpreting your own self-worth, interpreting the meaning of your life, interpreting all of those things for the... Uh, and in other words, to say, well, this now tells me who I am, and this makes me better than other people. I think, you know, we, we see this. I think it's interesting that we see this uh, among the politicians. Some of the most patronizing of most of the politicians, the most patronizing ones are the ones who have the most wealth. Um, that somehow or other, whatever the problem with it is, if, if they, if they have a, if they, their guilt feel guilty because they're so wealthy, then there's a solution to that. You know, they can dispose of their wealth. If in fact they, uh, somehow or other feel better than other people because of their wealth, then the gospel speaks to them and warns them and admonishes them. You know, saying the real, the real friends of the Lord, the real friends of God are the ones who trust Him completely and the ones who are willing to live with the hardships of life for the sake of being faithful to the Lord. All of this is, is, is part of that dynamic of loose gospel. And then finally he says, Alas for you when the world speaks well of you, for this was the way their ancestors treated the false prophets. Um, and so he goes back now. Now Luke goes back to this whole issue of the prophets themselves and the false prophets, and, and of which there were so many. We have, the, uh, you know, we have the example of the prophets of Baal uh, when Elijah has them all slain after the great test of whose God is the true God and whose God is the real God. But that we also know, for instance, the prophet Amos. They said, well, don't let Amos into the city because he always brings me bad news. Um, you know, we have plenty of prophets that will tell you good news, and so we take care of them, and we keep them at court, and they have a comfortable life. So that what, what Luke is reminding people of is that the real prophets were oftentimes persecuted and driven out, whereas the false prophets were doted upon. And so now what Luke is doing is equating the, the world to, to those who only want to hear what they want to hear. For alas for you when the world speaks well of you. You know, this is when, for instance, those who bear the name of the faith and then, um, especially in public life, then, you know, um, support and propose um, dastardly laws, laws and, and rules that are, in, that are barbaric and pagan, and then have say, oh, well, but, you know, look at me. Look at how good I am. And, um, and, and so how wonderful, how, you know, it's that old, that funny little English story about stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? It is, you know, look at me. I can do what I want. I'm, I can claim to be Christ's disciple while at the same time serving the ends of Satan. 
It just simply isn't work, doesn't work that way. And Luke calls those people out now in this last verse. For alas for you when the world speaks well of you. For this was the way their ancestors treated the false prophets. So the whole thing of the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Luke is, uh, is, is this idea that the meaning of our lives are enhanced and deepened and enriched by fidelity to the Lord, faith in Jesus Christ. And that, as a matter of fact, in this faith in Jesus Christ, which is that which gives our life depth and meaning, we are able to endure whatever hardships the world chooses to lay upon us, whatever difficulties life seems to place in our path, whether that is want or whether that is illness, or whether that is sorrow, or whether that is persecution, that the test of the one who believes is the one who is faithful to the Lord despite everything. And that as Christianity um, is moving into a confrontation, a conflict with the Roman Empire, and the great persecutions are to begin, they have been forewarned by the Gospel of Luke, be strong, for no matter what befalls you, no matter what happens to you, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God will be yours if you remain faithful to the Lord. Yours also even in this life, for here you will have the consolation and the strength and the knowledge that God is with you, that God is with us, is with us, around us, loves us, and will care for us. We might want to take note for that also now in the present age. In the present age of the great anti-Christian atrocities and anti-life atrocities that are going on everywhere around the world, but specifically seem to be focused in the Christian West, or the post-Christian West, where we should have the information, we should have the knowledge, we should have the sense of what is proper and what is not proper in God's kingdom and in God's way of life and in what God asks of us. But instead, then, because the persecution and the hatred of Christianity is all around us, watch, watch the media, watch the entertainment world, Watch the politicians. They won't come out and say, I hate Christians, but they will come out and call Christians every single name, especially if they try to be faithful to the Lord. For in their hearts, they hate the Lord Jesus. And in their hearts, they desire to wrest the soul of humanity away from its creator, its origin, its source, its destiny, and to invest it in themselves for what they have so that it is under their control and their power. Because basically, their basic and ancient question remains, who is in charge of the world? God or humanity? Eve chose to experiment with the possibility of humanity being in charge of the world when she ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. Somehow or other, the Blessed Mother, as the, as the Immaculate Conception, as the woman freed from sin, exactly as Eve was freed from sin, has made the other choice for humanity. The one that says, the Lord is God and he alone. There is no other. 
He is the one who loves us, who cares for us, who gives our life meaning, and who culminates our life in some kind of union with him in the great and final day of the Lord for all eternity. We have the choice, and Luke puts the choice before us, an interesting reminiscent of Deuteronomy. I place before you life and death. Choose life. I place before you that which passes away and that which is forever. Choose that which is forever. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So